It's time for Cadillac On Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac On Call, here's Jim Hall. Good day, friends. Welcome to Cadillac On Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. Each week, we join you to provide the latest health and medical news important to the communities of our region. On today's program, we will visit with a critical care specialist for tiny babies in what's called a neonatal intensive care unit, or you may have heard their term NICU. Catholic Regional Medical Center has the region's highest level neonatal ICU, caring for sick babies from throughout southeast Washington and northeast Oregon. That will be coming in the second half of our program. First, we're going to cover the latest COVID news as it impacts our region. And while we continue to get overall promising news on the COVID front, we have seen the case rates and hospitalizations inch up ever so slightly over the past week or two. So we welcome to the program tonight Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, I guess, what is the COVID headline today? Sure, Jim. Um, Unfortunately, we are seeing a, a bit of a slight increase in in both Benton County and Franklin County over the last week. And so it's something we need to be very vigilant. We know that there are counties on the west side that certain communities are seeing some definite spikes up. And those communities have gone back to recommending masks happen in certain environments And as we look at our data, looking over the last seven days, Benton County uh, case rate went from 27.22% per 100,000 up to 61.4. And Franklin County went 60.12% up to 93.75. You know, the numbers aren't, the total numbers aren't huge, but these are still concerning and worth keeping our eyes on. Um, hospitalizations due to COVID are also beginning to increase ever so slightly with the seven-day admission due to COVID increasing um, to 54.79%. But in that situation, the total number of patients is still quite small. And um, as we need to take that into context, and then the seven-day admission rate with COVID increased also a little bit. So those are people who went to the hospital for other reasons, happened to be tested and and did come up positive, but aren't necessarily hospitalized for COVID illness. And then when we move to our test sites, uh, we're also seeing an increase in not only positivity rate, but the number of people accessing testing at those sites. So CBC West, over the last 14 days, did a total of um, 427 tests, and the positivity rate from 411 to 424 did increase by by 10, 10, almost 11%. And that's a a 6, almost a 7% increase from the previous week. So definitely something to keep our our eyes on. The Richland site, however, saw a slight decrease in their positivity rate over the same time period. So, again, we have to keep watching that data. And then when we come to vaccines, again, we're we're slowly, ever so slowly inching up. And this week we did see a 0.1% increase in vaccine um, uptake in both Benton and Franklin counties. The state average is 67.9% fully vaccinated, 
and Benton County is at 55.9 and Franklin at 52.2. So uh, we still lag behind the state in general for vaccination rates. Even with all of this data, um, our Benton-Franklin County region is still considered at low COVID community level. But like I said, we really have to watch these closely because things can spike very, very quickly and then we can run into definitely some stresses on the medical system. And, and that's what we're trying to avoid is stressing our medical providers, our hospitals, and getting inundated with cases and, and getting to that tipping point we were at a few months ago where even accessing care was very, very difficult because of our COVID rates. So again, keep your eyes on the data and really make some decisions about when and where you're personally going to wear your mask. You may choose to wear it in a crowded environment where your risk of exposure could be significantly higher, understanding that our, our rates are starting to go back up. You use the term low COVID community level. Is that a category of what the current transmission rate is as a definition? Right. We look at, you know, various various factors and, you know, hospitalizations and how much is in the community and the percent. And that all that helps us determine are we at a, a low, a, a moderate or a high level. And, and we're still considered at low, even with our slightly increased. But we sure don't want things to suddenly spike up as they have throughout the last couple of years where we'll hit a real low rate and things are looking good and we let our guard down and then things increase again. And understanding that right now we're still dealing with Omicron, but there's always that concern, uh, what if another variant comes along that once again throws our, our data out of whack because we're, not, because we're seeing a lot of, of positives and a lot of transmission. We can't anticipate that that's going to happen right now, but we have to keep watching just in case something like that does happen again. So, you know, we need to keep remembering all of our mitigation strategies from vaccines to, um, you know, that social distancing, staying with your pod, your little safe pod of people, wearing your, your face coverings, your masks, particularly those, those good masks that give you good coverage when you're in those really high-risk environments. And I guess, you know, the, one of the challenges that we're seeing and, and certainly the fatigue is is the one word that we've been saying, gosh, for months, if not a year or so or more. But relative to these mitigation strategies, obviously people are, are out doing things in close proximity to one another in indoor situations. And and certainly it's a personal decision, but is it, is it at a point where you just, you know, maybe just have that mask with you and if you find, uh, you know, you know, I, 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 I'm not feeling right about this right now. And, you know, it, it, you can kind of pick your spots rather than, you know, having to feel this confined uh, right, order to wear we really Yeah, we really encourage people to keep those masks handy because you never know when you're going to um, find yourself in an environment that, you know, this just feels a little bit too unsafe for me. I'd rather prevent getting sick. I'd rather prevent an infection. And I would hope that more and more as as a community and as a nation, the face masks um, become part of our normal respiratory hygiene practices, especially when colds and flu and COVID are swirling around. 
it's it's something we need to always remember that it's a really good way to stop respiratory illness from from transmission within our community, whether it's COVID or any of these others. So that should become part of our, our normal practice, just like we taught people cough and sneeze into your elbow. Well, another really good respiratory hygiene practice is put that mask on when you're just feeling a little bit under the weather. You're not sure what you have, but you're feeling like you have some respiratory illness starting. That's a perfect time to to put that mask on. And then for those people who are high risk uh, that really want to prevent, make sure you have masks around just in case you find yourself in a high risk environment. You know, certainly airplane travel, crowded stores, crowded events, that's when you need to get that mask out. I was going to say you were, uh, my next question, you, you touched on slightly, and, and I, I brought a smile to my face because I kind of consider myself an amateur epidemiologist over the past two years uh, from being uh, <laughs> communication with you so much. But, but the point being, you know, it's interesting, I, I, just anecdotally, I'm encountering friends and family members who've gotten colds and things of that nature. And is that what you're meaning by this? You know, it's COVID or otherwise, it's it's a pretty good health practice to, you know, right. be smart. And we see this in many other cultures where colds and flus are, are circulating and and it's just normal part of protecting each other in the community is masks are very commonly used in many Asian countries for the sole purpose of, of respiratory hygiene and protecting the community and that's been ongoing for many, many, many years. It's not new since COVID. And that's a, a practice that I would hope we in, in the United States and in our community would consider the health benefits of, of using masks at selected times throughout, you know, our health and wellness. Visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District, we have another few minutes to talk about uh, with her relative to COVID and some of the the testing uh, samples and testing uh, techniques that they have available to them. And we'll do that right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Catholic on Call, presented by the Catholic Foundation, and we're visiting with Heather Hill at the Benton Franklin Health District and getting into a different component of the COVID examination this evening, and that is how different ways that uh, public health experts are able to detect the level. And, of course, we place so much emphasis on just pure testing and, and the different types of testing available to us. But, Heather, I know there's other ways that uh, you're utilizing to determine the, the COVID level and and talk a little bit about what you described as wastewater-based epidemiology and how that works. Sure. This is a really exciting topic to talk about. Um, It's a technology that actually has been used since the 1950s. So again, it's not brand new technology. It's not a brand new um, way of of surveying to see what kind of diseases or other biologicals are in our wastewater system, but it has certainly been very helpful during during COVID. And as of um, 2022, this year, there are about eight countries that are doing the uh, wastewater-based epidemiology surveillance for COVID. 
And what it does is it measures various biological markers, chemicals in wastewater that's generated by people. So when you ingest things or you're ill with certain diseases, illnesses, there's evidence that comes out of our body in our waste, whether it be urine or feces. And when that hits our waste systems in our communities, there are ways to do some testing to see at what level a certain organism or a certain chemical might be in in that wastewater system. And we can watch at the rates of increase or decrease to determine, you know, what are the trends, kind of the what are the surveillance trends going on within our community regarding whatever we're watching for. And um, typically, most of our testing is done on an individual, like the nasal swabs or urine testing on an individual. But this is a way to get a, a sense of kind of overall community, what is happening. And so this is a, a partnership between Benton Franklin Health District, Washington State Department of Health, and um, the Center for Disease Control, where four, and four municipalities locally, so it's Pasco, Kennewick, Richland, and West Richland. And so uh, wastewater is collected anywhere from one to about three times a week, and then it's tested for the percent, the level, the level of, in this situation, COVID evidence is found in that wastewater. And it's really important to understand this is really an early warning system. It needs to be looked at in conjunction with other data. You don't just look at data like this standalone and say, oh, we have a spike, we have a decrease. So you really, again, this is one more tool for us in the world of disease surveillance to kind of gauge what's going on in our community. So um, we have now started to, as of I believe last Thursday, started to post our, our data on our dashboard, on our website, and when you look at our data, you'll see two lines, and one is hospitalization, and the other is level of um, what we're seeing in the wastewater environment. And you can start to see things trend up or trend down, and historically what we've seen is if the wastewater level starts to trend up, then soon thereafter we'll start to see hospitalizations trend up. So, again, it's just a really good way to um, keep an eye on what's going on. It's not invasive. We can do it easily and, and really gauge what's happening in the community. And, again, this has been used, this technology is being used for a lot more other biologicals or substances in, in communities for many, many years, and it helps us determine a little bit better, you know, what is the overall health, what is the overall concerns, what kind of chemicals are we concerned about, um, you know, are antibiotics coming out of the human body and into the wastewater system, is that a concern? So there's a, there's a whole science behind doing wastewater surveillance that, you know, actually is pretty interesting, and I think it's going to become even an and a more important tool in the world of public health and um, disease surveillance. Is that, as you mentioned, some of the data you gave at the top of our program of seeing some increases in the COVID presence in the community? Is that this, you've been able to start utilizing this data to factor into your interpretations? 
Right. It's interesting to look at, you know, what are we seeing out of our test sites? What are we seeing in the wastewater? What are we seeing in hospitalizations and seeing how they trend similarly? And then that, as we learn more about how to interpret this data, we will be able to give better messages to our community. So if we suddenly started to see extremely high wastewater um, rates of, you know, evidence that COVID is in there, then that tells us we need to start messaging our community about what we're seeing, understanding that soon thereafter we could start to see that spike in, in the hospitalizations for COVID. You know, as people are going in and getting tests, PCR-type tests, less and less and less, we don't have as good data from those test sites. People are testing at home with their antigen test kits, which is wonderful, but we don't get that data to help message our community then what's going on trend-wise with COVID. And this is just one more really exciting tool that we now have available and we will be posting every Thursday. We'll be updating it on the dashboard on our website. Let's uh, finish where we began, and that was is with our current COVID level activity. And, and the one area I know you have been most concerned with is is those who are most vulnerable, especially as as we open up and and the requirements for these mitigation strategies aren't as strict. Uh, strict. And so, are you seeing? Uh, I guess in long term care was one area because of the older populations. Are those? Uh, are you seeing those types of? types of outbreaks uh, that you may have seen uh, a month or so ago, or are we, is that just a level of concern for those populations uh, right now? It is still a significant level of concern, and we are continuing to see the occasional flurry of activity in these long-term care, these very vulnerable senior populations. And again, that tells us that COVID is still in the community. There are still people who are at significantly higher risk of bad outcomes. And that's why we need to not let our guard down. We need to keep using all those mitigation strategies. We need to get vaccinated. We need to get those high-risk people vaccinated so that if they do catch COVID, we know through vaccination they are much less likely to die and or you know even land in the hospital severely ill. So, again, we look at all the data we get from all these different places, and it's telling us right now Tri-Cities is doing pretty good, but it's starting to inch up, and we cannot let our guard down. Maybe take another 30, 40 seconds to close our, our conversation tonight, and that's maybe that closing message is we've, the, on the, pro, the promising side, we've, we've come to know that we can get to a very low level uh, of incidents and case rates and hospitalizations and, and be able to go out and, and, and do things like we've been used to forever. Is, is that maybe the takeaway for tonight? You know, I really do think that's the takeaway is we, we have talked doom and gloom for a lot of months now, but through all of this, we've learned ways to protect ourselves, keep our community safe, keep our community healthier. And we just need to keep our our eyes on those strategies so that we can continue to do all those things that we missed for so many years and are really starting to enjoy again now. Heather Helm with the Benton Franklin Health District. And again, the Health District website is a great resource of information for the latest COVID data and all of the other public health 
uh, concerns that you might have, uh, questions that you need to get addressed, uh, go to bfhd.wa.gov. Back with the second half of Catholic on Call in just a minute. Listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Here again, Jim Hall. And a reminder, if you missed any part of our program, Catholic on Call is available via podcast. Just search Catholic on Call wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. One area that we would like to focus on tonight is an area that Catholic has really excelled in, and gosh, greater than 30 to 5 to 40 years here in the Tri-Cities, and that is the care of the smallest of our citizens, and those would be babies that have to spend part of their early days in a neonatal intensive care unit. And we're fortunate to have with us tonight Dr. Kashish Mera, who is a neonatal intensive care specialist at Catholic Regional Medical Center. And Dr. Mera, first of all, thanks for taking the time because I know you're actually on call, so hope we'll be at least quiet for the next 24 minutes. But I'd like to have you, if you would, share with our listeners Explain really just what is an NICU, a neonatal intensive care unit. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. And neonatal intensive care unit, it's like, as it says, it's an intensive care unit like for adults when they get sick. They need the highest level of care in medicine. And in neonatal ICU, we take care of two part of population that I see. One is preterm babies. Any preterm babies that are born in the hospital or outside is brought to the intensive care unit, and they are discharged closer, mostly closer to their due date. And based on their needs, they are taken care of. Obviously, the more premature a baby is born, uh, more care and more support and more intensive care they need. And other part of that is we also take care of term babies, um, Unfortunately, not all term babies are born healthy. Sometimes they have slight difficulties in the beginning. Uh, some have long-term problems, but we take care of both preterm and term babies who need help after birth and um, get them to uh, good health. What types of complications would a baby in this situation most likely be experiencing? So let's talk about the full-term babies first. Full-term babies, the most common complications these babies have I would put them in maybe two three categories. One is the breathing problem. A lot of babies who are born, especially by C-section, they sometimes moms are not in labor and the hormones are not kicked enough. So those babies have something we call retained lung fluid. All babies are supposed to have fluid in their lungs, first of all, and they and, and after birth that fluid is supposed to go away. But then some babies have this delayed transition where it just takes longer for the fluid to clear, and they have respiratory, respiratory distress, means having breathing difficulties with chest going in. That's one of the most common that we see in term babies. Well, other than that, we see glucose issues uh, and infections in term babies. I would say these are the three more common things that we see in uh, term babies. Preterm babies, on the other hand, is a whole, is a whole spectrum, as I said. 
For example, we start calling preterm by definition anything beyond uh, below 37 weeks. And we save babies as low as 23, 23, 24 weeks. <clears throat> now, 23, 24 weeks is a gray zone. It's a discussion in itself. But it's amazing how science has made some pr tremendous progress. And it was only about 10 years ago we were not able to save, save these babies. But with these new advancements, we are able to save, save 23-week-old babies. That is amazing to me. But for... For example, 23-week babies, we consider the sickest babies in our unit <clears throat> because you think of, you take off any, any uh, system in the body, from hairs to toe, uh, your brain, lung, heart, your belly, your digestive system, everything is premature. And our job is to take this baby to full term uh, and to their full growth potential. So the commonest complications that these preterm babies, at 23 weeks, you will see them having absolutely a lot of breathing difficulties right after birth. And I would say most of these babies need a breathing tube um, right after birth. And they need longer days on ventilator, long, like they cannot be fed right away. So they need to be on uh, central lines or IV lines, special IV lines that stay for longer they are at risk for infections. And the mere size of the baby, you'll see these 23 weeks sometimes closer to, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know the pounds, but about 350, as well as 350 to 400 grams, uh, these babies. So you can imagine the size of the baby and the uh, sheer complexity of taking care of these babies. And as you go, as you add each week after 23, 24 weeks, the chances of these complications of breathing, infection, feeding, brain bleeds, that, that tends to go lower and lower. Each week, mom remains pregnant and the baby stays with mom. And as like after 37, 38 weeks, they are, these risks are minimal, but they're not um, completely out. Baby's not completely out of danger. So in many of these cases, this these are long term hospital stays in the NICU, right? So the parents, uh, it's, it's a long haul for these families. It is. Unfortunately, uh, it is. Especially, as I said, if you're born at 24, 20, 23, 24 weeks, um, parents usually, as I said, we don't, we don't have a requirement that baby needs to stay, stay until the due date, but that's approximate, that's what it comes out to be, yes. So... Talk to me a little bit about the, the regional scope of the Catholic service, because obviously we're primarily the population of the Tri-Cities is the main service mm -hmm. area of Catholic. But I know from a geographic standpoint, your unit, the Catholic unit, receives patients from a pretty wide geography, right? That is absolutely right. And that is something that we enjoy serving the community that within, and I take proud in that saying that I I have represented this unit for three years, but I take absolute pride in our team and the amenities that this unit has. So to give you a little scope, we are level three, and I'll explain in a minute what that means. But we cover, I would say roughly when I've seen around 100 mile radius, uh, 100 mile radius of coverage for, means we have accepted babies from within 100 mile radius and from nearby hospitals. And obviously, we serve a tri-city community. And 
amenities we talked about. And level three means uh, we take care, we can take care of all premature babies as low as 23, 24 weeks. And uh, we have the capability of talking to all the pediatric subspecialties uh, with the help of our level four centers, Spokane Children and Seattle Children's Hospital. Uh, our NICU, I would say, is pretty unique. Um, I honestly don't know. There, there will be really handful or really limited number of NICUs in the country which will have the kind of machineries that we have in the sense that uh, if listeners are aware, there is uh, like the type of ventilator, especially the ventilator, uh, the inventory that we have is amazing. We have something called pressure control ventilation. We have volume control ventilation and we have high frequency oscillators and jet ventilators. Now to give you an idea, high frequency oscillators and jet ventilators are the top of the line when the babies get really sick. That's what they need, um, those high-end high ventilators. And we have both of those available. And for a level three NICU to have all these ventilators, it's, it's very unique uh, in itself. Mm-hmm. Other part that we do is uh, services that we offer is something called cooling. I mean, quote unquote cooling, but it's called therapeutic hypothermia. We need this treatment. This is very crucial actually for term or near term babies when they have very difficult delivery right after birth the babies do not get oxygen for some time baby's brain does not get oxygen for some time so they go hand in hand and as a as a result babies at risk for severe developmental problems and in order to reverse those or to prevent those problems in futures with more muscle tone speech we cool the babies like we do for stroke patients in adults uh, we cool babies using special machines. It's called therapeutic hypothermia. And it's a very specialized technique which has shown to prevent brain damage. Incredible. That is very unique to our NICU. And also we do special IV lines, chest tubes, and exchange transfusion. Now, exchange transfusion is also a very critical and very intensive procedure, which means we exchange babies whole blood volume with the new blood in order to get rid of some like bad toxins in the body. Like if the jaundice level gets way too high, sometimes that procedure is necessary. But just so you know, not all babies who have jaundice need this. The need for this procedure is very low. I say this because a lot of listeners will be listening like, oh my God, is my, if my baby has jaundice, then is the baby <laughs> going to need that treatment? No. Right. So that's a very, very rare procedure, but it, we do that if needed. But in many cases, I think the, the bottom line is that this allows families to be able to stay in the Tri-Cities or stay closer to their home for this uh, very specialized care. We're visiting with Dr. Kashish Mera, a neonatal intensive care specialist at Catholic. We have another segment with him that he's generously going to share with us, and we'll talk more with him about NICU care right after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. 
Another consequence of the pandemic has been an increased incidence of drug addiction, particularly through prescription drugs and opioids, and it's primarily related to elevated levels of anxiety and depression. And for babies born to drug-addicted mothers, it can be heartbreaking as the baby can experience addiction and withdrawal symptoms, leading them to a prolonged hospital stay, which could be in the NICU. And that's our topic tonight. We're visiting with Dr. Kashish Mera, an NICU specialist at Catholic. And I know, Dr. Mera, we had you on a few months ago to talk about this topic. And remind our mm-hmm. listeners, just if you would, real quickly, just what the significance of this and how it, it, COVID has really magnified this a little bit, right? Sure, yep, absolutely. So, um, as I was explaining previously, some term babies, they have problems and they need hospital stay in the ICU, and uh, drug babies who have been exposed to drugs when they were with their mom is uh, one of those patients. We have been seeing a lot of these babies coming to NICUs because not all drug babies, sorry, not all drug-exposed babies uh, need hospital admission, but we've been seeing a lot of new, uh, a lot of admissions, babies needing ICU-level care means they are not able to feed, they need IVs, they need uh, more and more medicines. And as I said, like during COVID, this this has been uh, increasing. And I think what other thing that we have also seen is amount of street drugs. Like sometimes you don't even know what the babies have been exposed to. And that poses another layer of challenge in managing these babies. And so this is, when this happens, what, what role can the NICU staff play? What, what's, your, what's your recovery methods with these children? So for recovery, um, depends on the symptoms. When the babies come to the ICU means they've already declared that they are not able to feed and their tone is too high, they may have breathing difficulties. So we assess the babies and assess the babies for need for morphine because that's what they are withdrawing from. So the treatment is to give the body morphine and taper it off or take it off slowly from baby's body system so that baby body doesn't feel like it has been cut off right away. So you slowly taper off. So first thing is we assess whether the baby needs morphine, then uh, help them with the feeding. And we have something called cuddler program. Now we understand a lot of parents doesn't matter uh, which situation they are in, they may not be able to come 24-7 to take care of these babies. And so we are cuddlers who are uh, who have been screened thoroughly, who have been vetted properly. Uh, they can come and hold these babies. And it seems like a surprise, but or may not seem like a surprise, but that does help a lot because when the, these babies are held, um, they need less morphine, they're able to feed better, they're able to soothe themselves better, and it has been well proven with uh, studies. And we use a method called Eat, Sleep, Console. Now, this method has been proven in medicine and literature that it is the best method and the best care for babies who are exposed to drugs because it means we let the babies eat on their own time, sleep on their own time, and console if needed. And for example, if the baby is showing a lot of symptoms and the team huddles around the baby, and it includes a nurse, provider, and they discuss whether the baby needs morphine or not, rather than just saying, oh yeah, the baby has some symptoms, let's just give the baby morphine. So I want to emphasize that treatment decision is taken um, 
very sincerely taking into all all factors into consideration before we say yes the baby needs morphine but that is the way to go that we give this baby morphine and slowly take it off the system and then send home i just have a minute or so left uh, of your time and you've been so thorough with your explanation on the work that you do in the NICU i just want to conclude with maybe more of a personal and human reaction to why do you do what you do i'm guessing uh these this is very highly emotional uh, medicine that you practice and is that part of the reason that you do what you do uh i don't know if it makes sense uh, that it was meant to be like when i put myself in different rotation you know as a medicine uh, physician you rotate through all the departments you do you do rotate with every field of the medicine but this is where i felt like this is my calling or you know i don't know if it's too much but it felt like this is where i belong i uh, that's all i can say <laughs> and i was going to say the obviously it's it's very you know high stress work but I, and i'm sure you know not every case is a win but i'm sure you just must be so proud of the team that you work with and the difference that you can make for these families whatever the outcome presents to them right right that is true and Stress, I think, yes, it's a part of the job, but I would say that when you love something like, if you're in love with your work, then it's not a stress, it's just uh, just your life. And I want to conclude by thanking you and the team. The neonatal intensive care unit Catholic has been around for many, many years and is highly regarded, as Dr. Mara said, and unfortunately, it's it's highly in need, uh, which is, I guess, uh, uh, it's, we're fortunate that it is here for the patients of our region. Dr. Kashish Mera, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. And I would point out a phone number for people to call back to this addiction issue that we were talking about. Catholic operates a community resource desk that's available, and they have a tremendous number of resources that people, not only on this particular issue, but all throughout other health issues in the community. And so if you know of someone that might need this assistance, please call 509-942-2956, 509-942-2956. Our thanks to Dr. Mara, and thank you for listening to Catholic on Call. We'll talk again next Wednesday night.